share. He's a really good guy. Um, but we've been in this sermon series. Um, what is it called? <laughs> Ruined a renovation. And we've been going from a lot of Dallas Willard stuff, from Renovation of the Heart, his book, Renovation of the Heart. And, and I, a couple of weeks, we're going to end that. Um, by the time I go to Colorado, we'll be done with that sermon series. Some of you are like, yes, you know. Um, but we do need to finish things, so amen. I am really still loving it. So um, you're trapped for the next few weeks if, if you're wanting to see something change. Um, but we, we heard these verses last week, but I wanted to reiterate this. It says, what good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Right? We talked about the soul last week. And then he continues, Jesus says, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I was recently watching uh, a show, an interesting show. Every episode is sort of different and all that kind of stuff. But one was set on the fact that these people, due to technology embedded in their eyeballs, uh, they, they had the ability to sort of block someone that they didn't like anymore, they were fighting with and all that kind of stuff. And so they didn't have to interact with them anymore. And as soon as they pushed a button... Uh, they would all they, all they would see is a silhouette, and all they could hear is murmuring. They couldn't even tell what they were saying, and that that person also would see the same thing and hear the same thing from them. And at the end of the show, one guy is punished when he's set free from prison uh, through this deal that he struck. But he doesn't realize that the one one of the stipulations is that when he gets outside, he's blocked from all the other souls in the world. So although he can walk around freely out in the world, he's still in this prison because he still can't. All he can see is silhouettes and he can't hear or communicate with anyone. It just it would be a nightmare, right? The soul uh, it's not something we really think about a lot, but the soul is foundation, the foundational level of life, right? And, and by nature, it is rooted in God, rooted in the creator of it, right? Realize it or not, all of humankind, it's the one relationship. It's the one relationship that we all really, truly long for. Augustine was right when he said, Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Right? Thee thou. Thee thou language. We never use that here, do we? (laughs) But humankind is walking around as if they can only see in silhouettes, unable to hear God's voice. That's what I thought about when I watched that show. Born into that state, knowing nothing else, they long, not recognizing it is a long for a divine soul connection with their soul. And we do all kinds of things to satisfy that. In tragic spiritual bondage, they can't recognize God even if He stood before them. But the good news we know as Christians, is that Jesus removes that blockage. He's the on button for us. When, when we drop our pride, when we meet Him, we drop our pride uh, and receive His sacrifice for our spiritual blockage, He turns the system back on. He turns the lights back on. And God comes into focus in the person of Jesus Christ. And suddenly, we can hear His voice again. We can communicate. We can have a vibrant relationship with Him. We are friends of God, Right? No longer are there murmuring silhouettes 
we've learned to disregard and not even pay attention to, but someone with whom we can have a relationship giving meaning and true lasting life to us. Psalms is the great soul-longing book, right? If you read through it, it's, it's just like a longing for God, right? Listen to how he, write, he expresses this stuff uh, in a few of these verses. It says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. And in a dry, weary land where there is no water. Like really powerful language. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. I just went to Shady Maples yesterday. That is the nastiest place on earth. It is a cultural experience, but oh my gosh, my body was reacting for like the next 24 hours. It, is, it was nasty. Talk about fatty food. Ugh. And, I, and they had to put a little sign up saying, take all you want, but don't take more than you need. And I'm thinking, like, everything here is set up for me to pile everything on my plate and leave half of it uneaten. It's just so, uh, I don't know. Anyway, it's, it's an experience. But uh, 60, Psalm 63, 8, my soul, my soul clings to you, right? Think about a child clinging to their mother's legs, right? Your right hand upholds me. My song, soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the, of the Lord. My heart and flesh <coughs> sing for joy to the living God. And here's a good one. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O oh God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? When, when am I going to be connected, right? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Isn't it strange, just a side thought, isn't it strange how just encouraging words help you get through things? Like just to read that when you're going through a hard time helps for some strange reason. That last psalm there with the waters roaring and foaming uh, reminds me of one of my favorite stories. John Wesley, you've heard me tell it before if you've been here long enough. Uh, as he returned to England from America, what, from what may have been considered a failed ministry uh, to the Indians in America, the American Indians. And at the time, he considered himself to be a great Christian, a good Christian. He was a pastor, he was a missionary, he was educated, he knew the scriptures, he was doing the work, you know, all that kind of stuff. However, on the ship back from England, a storm brewed and they were tossed around violently and they were scared for their lives and all that stuff. And John was terrified. He was shaken to the core, right, when on that ship. But while he was there, he noticed this band of Moravian Christians on their knees praying sort of in real peace as the storm roared around them on on this ship. And, you know, he asked himself the question, where did they get such peace in the midst of all this chaos and uncertainty? 
And when he returned to England, he wrote, and I love these words, he said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Who, what is he that shall deliver me from this evil heart of unbelief? I have a fair summer religion. I can talk well, nay, and believe myself while no danger is near. But let death look me in the, in the face and my spirit is troubled. Nor can I say to die is gain. I show my faith by my works, mistaking my all upon it. Oh, who will deliver me from this fear of death? I was just speaking to somebody this week that had something really traumatic happen in their life. And they were like, I almost went in the fetal position. And I, I wondered why my faith couldn't take this rocking, right? We all had that experience, right? But while uh, John Wesley was in England, he met another Moravian Christian named Peter Bowler who instructed him on salvation by faith alone and, and uh And he started to read Luther's commentary on Galatians. And he was then invited by this guy to a Moravian gathering. uh, And he wrote of that experience. And again, I love these words. He says, in the evening I went very unwillingly. Like like something was drawing him, but something was fighting in him too, right? To a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface, uh, preface to the epistle to the Romans. And about a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine. Remember, this guy's a pastor, missionary, and all that stuff, right? He's been to seminary and saved me from the law of sin and death which says to you that you can do the whole religious thing and not even know the Lord. John's soul was being turned on at that moment. Three days before this, his brother Charles had the same experience, which is pretty cool. He, he could suddenly see God for who he really was in the person of Jesus. And he could have a relationship with him, allowing him to have peace in the midst of uncertainty and chaos. But sometimes, even sometimes, right, even after our soul's been turned back on, even after we have had that really true salvific experience in Jesus, it feels as if someone's turned the lights off again, hit the off button once more, back to seeing in silhouettes and having difficulty hearing God's voice. All of us have felt that, right? Maybe we've not paid attention too much to our soul's needs, that we've not nurtured the divine relationship too much, right? We've allowed the worries and the busyness or worse of the world to crowd out the axiomatic truth that our soul must commune with Jesus in order to be well fed and to have true meaning. Our soul must find rest in God. Augustine was right. Augustine was right. Now, this experience that we have sometimes in being dry in our faith and all that stuff doesn't negate God's saving grace in the issue of salvation. You're still saved. But we can clog up the relationship, can't we? In a a modern culture, 
so constantly clamoring for our attention with only sound bites and constantly shifting targets for salvation or, or, or satisfaction and fulfillment, God seems to stand quietly in the middle of the crowd, maybe like a shorted out screen coming only into focus in intermittent you know, intervals like an old TV trying to catch a weak signal, right? It's like, gzz, gzz, you know, I, I only see him a little bit here and there. Uh, right? Somebody told me I got to stop saying right when I preach. Right? Right? <laughs> right. Maybe he's right. I don't know. Um, but what, what if all this stuff that we pursue doesn't fully matter to our soul identity, to our true deep soul identity, right? What, what if it becomes toxic when it's all made priority and comes before Jesus, all the clamoring for career and financial safety nets and marriage and children or what have you, whatever it is in your life, is it possible that that which otherwise might be good when your soul's ordered well with Christ might actually become poisonous and deadening when Jesus is second, playing second fiddle in your life, right? What if what really matters is what Jesus said in Matthew 6. He says, therefore, I tell you, don't worry. (laughs) Don't worry about your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, about your body, what you're going to wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Isn't your soul that much more important? In other words, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are you that valuable can any one of you by worrying add one single hour to your life and why do you worry about clothes see how the flowers of the fields grow they don't labor or spin yet i tell you that not even solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these if that's how God clothes the grass of this, the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will He not much more clothe you, you, you of little faith? So do not worry saying, what shall we eat? What, what are we going to drink? What are we going to wear? Oh my gosh, right? For the pagans run after all these things. Run after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Your daddy takes care of you. But seek first, and this is probably the best verse out of this whole passage, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, don't worry. Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Wow, what a great passage. You know, when you hang out with good friends, I was with Joe and Rob the other day, and I thought about this. When you hang out with good friends, does it really matter what they do for a living? Does it really matter? Does it matter how important they are in some office, some place? I have a friend who owns a number of companies, big companies. He's very wealthy, but he's just my buddy. I don't see him at work. I couldn't care less how many people answer to him. How much 
money they have, does that matter? What kind of car they drive, any of that. Does any of that really, really matter with your friends? No, you you think of them as a mom or a dad, your friend who you call on in trouble, the person with whom you laugh and cry in life with. See, culturally, we we are told our sole identity is so deeply tied with what we own, what we do, what we drive, where we live, how much we have in the bank, what our sexuality is, how busy we are, whether we're married or not, or how much others rely on us and all that kind of stuff. In the midst of our worry, our souls may not be able to find rest or meaning in Christ. But Jesus comes along and He says, my burden is light and life-giving. Everything else only takes when it's made priority over Him. Come to Me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For My yoke is easy and My burden is light. Remember Proverbs 1-7 from last week. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Are we, do we listen to that? Do we listen to all these words? What if my soul was so satisfied in Jesus that I lived in the reality of Matthew 6 all the time? Gosh, wouldn't that be great? Or, I, or that I actually believed and practiced what He's called me to in the Great Commission. That I go out and I baptize people of all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I teach them to obey all that Jesus has commanded us. You know, what if, what if I was so overjoyed about what Christ has done in me, it just overflowed in me out to other people, both in word and deed? What if I could abandon all outcomes in all things, all relationships and and career and everything, if I could abandon all those outcomes and allow God just to be God in all situations, allow my dad to dress me and send me out the door with my little packed lunch and all that kind of stuff. What if that was my life? What if my gratitude for the system being turned back on was so, so great that it birthed in me this humility which could bear anything for Jesus? What if we could live out of 1 Peter 5, 5-10? All of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another because God opposes the proud but favors the humble, shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety. We live like an intense anxiety all the time, right? Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. In other words, think. Romans 12, 1 and 2 again, right? Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, and he devours you through all those lies, telling you what you, th- you need when you don't really need. Resist him. Stand against him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. You're not alone in all this garbage. 
We're all going through it. And some worse than others. We have first world problems, right? And the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a little while will Himself restore you and make you strong and firm and steadfast. Amen. Gosh. Woo. Loving these passages. I just am. Imagine that kind of life, right? Lights turned on. I'm you know, walking with Jesus. I'm abiding in Him. I'm walking humbly with Him. I'm having peace. I'm having purpose. I'm having meaning in my life. It sounds nice. That's what I want. And one sure way to ruin that idyllic image is not to practice, not to practice what 1 Peter 2.11 says when he says, I urge you as foreigners and aliens, in other words, people that are connected to the Heavenly Father in this world, as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your own soul. When we take back control of our lives, deciding for ourselves how we're going to live, picking up pride once more, which is the exact opposite of humility, right? We invite warfare on our own souls instead of peace. It's just counterintuitive. We We invite spiritual blockage to return. Not that we've lost our salvation. I don't believe that. That's in our statement of faith, which if you come to explore today, you'll hear. Um, But the, the relational pipes, the interactions, the friendship, the words, all that stuff which flow with rest and meaning can be clogged. And to unclog those pipes, firstly, we, we stand on God's mercy and grace, secure in our relationship with Him, trusting in His perfect law. Now, God's law provides a picture of reality. The true reality of how things are with God and His creation and with His people. God's law enables us to know Him more fully, to see what He's doing out there in the world, and to find our meaning and our purpose in that where true well-being actually lies in the world. As Moses said to to the people of his day, he said, What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way that the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to Him? Think about that. And what other nation is so great as to have such a righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them fade from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. In other words, fill yourself with the knowledge of God and let it overflow and pour out generation to generation to generation. Recently, someone, and I won't tell you who because they'll get embarrassed and get mad at me, but they told me that they read through the Bible in six months. Amen. Wow, what a, good, what a good thing to do, right? And during that time, all they could think of was, when I get through this, I can go back to watching Grey's Anatomy. <laughs> but after they were done, they said, you know what? I, I just can't do that since the, the benefit of receiving 
And storing up the Word of God had so much benefit to them in their heart that it made them only want more. So what do we do? You know, what's she going to do next? She. It's a she. I'll let that count. Her, her name... It, no, I remember. Um, but the word is powerful, isn't it? It is powerful. It is powerful, as stated in Hebrews 4.12. Uh, For the word of the Lord is active and uh, alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. It is a powerful, powerful thing to ingest and store up the word of God in your heart. And remember, from the beginning to the end of the Scriptures, it's always been true. It's, there's no difference from the Old Testament to the New Testament that human deliverance has always been by a personal relationship with God, established by His grace and His love, His gracious loving power. Right? But the law is an essential part of that relationship. God's Holy Spirit, the covenant promises uh, of grace, and His law always work hand in hand in our spiritual formation as His people. Jesus Himself places high emphasis on the law of God when He said in Matthew 5, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Why in the end would the law go away? Because we will have the character of God right there. We don't, not, we don't need it anymore after that. Martin Luther coined the term antinomian to designate and argue against certain people of his time that held that, the, the, that God's law wasn't a factor in conversion to Christ. And, and, and it means against the law, right? That they're, they're against it. And it's based on this mistaken conclusion that is strongly rejected by Paul and by Jesus that because we aren't, we aren't justified uh, by keeping the law, rather through just a personal relationship with Jesus, His sacrifice, His resurrection, and all that, that we have no essential use for the law of God anymore. We can just disregard it. We can just be done with it. The essential idea is that sinning or not sinning, obedience or non-obedience to the law has nothing to do with being saved. Nothing in the Scriptures, though, teach that. Nothing. On the contrary, the law is held as the perfect life-giving thing, this wonderful thing, something we're called, it's holy, something that we're called to obey and to follow under the freedom that we have in, the, in grace. With Jesus. Antinomianism is alive and well in the church today when we disregard whole passages or books of the Bible or whatever things, uh, or we water things down um, when they don't seem to fit what we want them to say and they lose their effectiveness. When we justify our sinful thoughts and actions by saying, well, that was true for them back then, but it's not true for us today because we're moderns. 
concerning all those issues which is, have always been universally orthodox beliefs and beliefs and values for the people of God throughout history. Some things aren't easy to understand in the scriptures, but we can't excise the law of, of things which don't fit our current humanistic worldview and decide for ourselves again how, to, how we want to live. That's just going back to the Garden of Eden and the fall. Being anti-law also comes to life in us when we decide in ourselves to do something that is really against scriptural teaching and, and scriptural values and beliefs and all that stuff. And just saying, well, Jesus died for me. He's going to forgive me. He has to. It's his job. You know, it's in his job description. Well, what did Paul say about that? Romans chapter 6, he said, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Can, by the way, can grace increase anymore? No, it can't, right? By no means, Paul says, exclamation point, stamp, right? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? In other words, We've died to those things that the law speaks against. We can't willingly seek them any longer and not expect, at the very least, to clog the pipes of relationship with God if we do. Jesus said the same in John 14. He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. And by the way, there are plenty of other verses that I could go to for this. But he says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. And we, we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Now, and then he says in Luke 6, he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? You, you've, we've got to live in the tension. We've got to live in the tension that Jesus is Lord and He's allowed to call me into obedience. The church has avoided this in many ways throughout the years. We have to live in the tension of being saved by grace, but allowing the Lord to expect something from us. Because we're saved by grace, yes, that is very true. But in spiritual formation, it matters what you do. It matters what you do. The pipes of relationship can be clogged. The image of Jesus can go fuzzy. The presence of the Spirit of God in our lives is not meant to set the law to the side, um, providing free license to do whatever I want. It's rather to enable conformity to the law of God, right? Through an inwardly transformed person. When we talk, when we, when we walk in the spirit of the law, the, the, the letter of the law follows appropriately. It's put in its right place. You can't gain righteousness. We all know this. You can't gain righteousness by what you do. In other words, a right relationship with God by what you do. That's legalism. We all know Jesus was the only perfect person. He was our sacrifice for that reason. We couldn't do it. But the spiritually transformed person, the person who has come to salvation in Christ and is being spiritually transformed, loves God to the point of obedience to His life-giving standards. The law by itself 
kills off any hope of rightness or, or, or righteousness before God through our own human ability and effort, but it kindles this great hope in, in God as we walk in step with the law through the power of Christ's redemptive work in our lives. The law comes with grace into the renewed soul. Law walks hand in hand with grace into the renewed soul, but there's no such thing as grace without God's perfect law. Grace has to do with life, and life requires order and meaning and purpose and direction. It's not willy-nilly. It's not anarchy. It's not chaos. There's an inner connection and affinity between the soul and the law of God. We know it. We feel it. Although we may not always want to uh, admit it. It's why when we become habitual lawbreakers, our souls become sickly and distanced from God. Right? But love of the law restores the soul under the confines of God's grace. Love of God's law restores us since it expresses the order of God's kingdom and reveals God's character to us. If we want to know God more fully, then we look deeply into the the eyes of His perfect law. We fill ourselves with the knowledge of God. Side note, uh, you know, Paul said, I think it was to the Corinthians, right? You're still eating, drinking milk. You should be eating meat by now. You know, it's, it's okay in the beginning when you first come to know Jesus not to have all your theological ducks in a row. But when you've been walking with Jesus for 20 or 30 years and you have not ingested the Scriptures and you've not even cared, that's not okay. That's not okay. Grace is essential in the sense that we can't live up to the law of God. We can't save ourselves by following the law perfectly. But grace isn't something which just gives us the freedom to do as we please, throwing God's character and throwing God's law aside. When my kids were little, I used to grab them by the arms and make them like hit themselves. <laughs> Be like, not hard. I mean, it was joking around and they'd be giggling and stuff. And I'd say, why are you hitting yourself? Stop hitting yourself. Don't hit yourself. That's crazy. Now, try to do that to Tanner now. It's like, you know, steel bars, you know. Um, but when we choose to walk outside of, of God's healthy standards that he's put forth, it's like hitting yourself, right? It's like hitting yourself all the time. If you find yourself too lenient in your walk of faith, too sort of liberal in what you allow yourself to do or think or anything like that, living life with a foot in two worlds. By the way, if you want to figure out if you have a a life in a foot in two worlds, just go look at your Facebook feed, right? And then compare that to your Sunday morning self, right? It usually reveals it. But if you find yourself like that, maybe you're clogging the pipes of relationship with God, right? Maybe if you feel dry, if you're not uh, finding rest in Jesus, maybe you're, you're feeling like you can't see Him, you can't hear His voice, and you're living, maybe you're living in ways which wage war against your own soul. Sometimes it's not God 
that's standing far off. It's us that's walking away. Bring balance back to your life by doing a study on a, on a book like James, which says things like, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? He's not saying your deeds save you. But he's saying the result of faith should bring about a change, a transformation in your life. So anybody whose aim is anything less than obedience to the law of God in the spirit and the power of Jesus will never have a soul at rest in God and will never advance significantly in spiritual formation into Christ-likeness. If that's not your goal. Transformation of your soul requires that we acknowledge its reality and the importance of it, its connection with with the divine, right? Placing it under the yoke of Christ, under His Lordship, which is light and, and, and easy. I wouldn't say it's easy necessarily, but it's not burdensome, right? You know, in learning and humility from Jesus... Abandoning the outcomes of life to God, who is really the only one that can handle it all anyway. And that brings true rest to the soul. The law is the structure of a life of grace in the kingdom of God, right? Let's walk well in righteousness and obedience to God in the solid foundation of grace, because Jesus was right. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? And Augustine was right. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless, restless until they find rest in him. Let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, come and uh, joyously convict us where we need to pay attention to our soul in light of you. Joyously convict us in ways which we may be waging war against ourselves, waging war against our own soul, ways in which we are clogging the pipes and we we're unable to see you or hear you in maybe in certain areas or maybe in our whole life because we've really not crossed that threshold fully. Come, Holy Spirit, and convict us so that we can walk into what you have promised, and that is life to the full. We know, we, we know that you've also promised this is going to be a difficult walk sometimes, that we will suffer for a while and all that kind of stuff. But we trust that you have everything in our hands, everything that we need, and that you define our meaning and our purpose and our value in this world, and nothing else does. Come and move us more deeply into that place. I just say yes.